We just come before you. We thank you for this opportunity to meet together and to fellowship. We ask that you guide us as we look at your word and that your Holy Spirit will show us what you would have us to learn about taking care of one another. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 24, starting verse 1. And we're doing more of the varied laws. And this one's talking a lot about family in this chapter and, and charity. Verse 1, when a man has taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she should find no favor in her eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it to her hand and send her out of, the, out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and to be another man's wife. And if the later husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and gives it to her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, the former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled, for it is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not cause the land to sin, which the Lord your God gives for an inheritance. So we're going to look at this uh, idea of divorce. And if you remember when the scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce, you know, is there is it lawful to you know divorce on any uh, for any reason? He says, you know, what does Moses say? <laughs> and then they asked him, well, well, why did Moses allow it? And he goes, because of the hardness of their heart. So we're going to look at what God says about divorce. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it shall come to pass if she find no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her. And this is a sinfulness. It really literally means adultery. Uh, Somebody who's done something, you know, not, not a virgin, he finds out that she wasn't a virgin, he can, he can divorce her. And this was the whole discussion that in Jesus' day, there was a, a school of thought in the rabbis that, you, that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. If he was just unhappy with her, he could divorce her. Other school followed exactly what this said, that he had to have a valid reason, namely adultery. And that was a battle that was going on between those who were wanting to follow righteousness and those who were trying to follow after the world and get whatever excuse they can possibly come up with. And in our, in our day, we have seen divorce go from real, real reasons of basically you have to have uh, adultery to now you can get divorced just because you don't like each other, supposedly. And, and you know, usually they call it irreconcilable differences. And you don't even need that much anymore. Just decide you don't want to be married anymore and you can end the, end the marriage. And this has been the problem all through history. Again, we go back to there's nothing new under the sun. And God is saying, no, this is the only reason for divorce. Adultery. An uncleanness. And it says that he writes her a bill of divorcement and, and gives it to her hand and she leaves his house. And when she leaves, she is able to become anybody else's wife at that point. Because that divorce, that divorce decree means that she is free. And then, but God has a caveat to this. We don't have in our world, because if that person becomes free, either by being divorced or the death of her husband, her second husband, she cannot go back to the first husband. God says that is an abomination because you're going back into something that was left. And this is really a picture of the spiritual realm. When we are Jesus's, married to Jesus, we do not go back to the world. Mm -hmm. We do not go back into the previous life that we had. 
And this is something that is very important for God. He does not want to see the returning to the past. And here's the same thing. You look, this husband all of a sudden thought, realizes he had a good thing uh, and decides he wants her back after the, after the death of some other husband or and whatever it might be, whatever his reason. And God says, no, that is not allowed. You cannot go back. And he wants a purity in us. He wants us to stay steadfast in this. But the most important part of this, is he says, you can divorce her because of this uncleanness, because of this sin, not just for any reason. And this is why for, for us as Christians, we hold on to the fact that we are to be married and we are to stay married. And because that's what God calls. The wife, uh, the woman was created to be the helpmate for Adam. And it should be the helpmate for the husband from that point on and, and be able to help and be able to develop a relationship. And there's that oneness that's drawn together. And one of the things that I have seen over the years is when, when couples divorce, they tear their soul apart and there's a real bitterness to one, toward one another for that point on. It may ebb and, ebb and flow, but especially if there's kids involved and you have to be around that spouse for the rest of your life, all the bitterness eventually comes out and there's that edge of hatred even. Still, still some of the love that puts you together in the first place, but there's that edge that that bitterness, that torn spirit. And then you see people who have been married and, and divorced several times, and you really see that bitterness and edge in, there, in them. And God's saying, you're to be joined together. And that's who, what we're told, who God is joined, let no man tear apart, because it is a gluing, a bonding together that God does not want to see torn apart. And I love to use the picture of wood glue. If you use a good wood glue on, on, on wood and try to break it, you know, try to break it at the glue. The glue isn't what breaks. The wood breaks. And that's the way it is when we tear apart a, a marriage. The, the souls have been knit together and they are torn apart. And God says, don't do it. Don't do it is his, his advice on this. Uh, verse 5, when a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, and he shall be free at home for one year and shall cheer up his wife when, which he has taken. And this is kind of an interesting rule. In Israel, when you got married, you had a one-year honeymoon. You did not go to work. You did not go to war. You were just to enjoy learning about each other for one year. Not a bad deal. But part of the, to be, even before they got married, they would be espoused, and the husband-to-be had to go out, build a house, get the crops in, provide, be able to provide for this year of not going out and laboring and not being called out to war. And if you remember just about four or five chapters ago, we talked about when they go out to war, they were to ask them certain questions. Who just got married? Go home. <laughs> Who just built a house and you haven't even had a chance to live in it yet? Go home. Who's afraid? <laughs> go home. And there was a series of questions that said you, you were not going to have anybody there that didn't belong in that battle because if, if they were afraid, they would cause fear amongst all the people. If they had something to lose, there was no sense to go and get married and not have a chance to even be with your wife. They go, don't do that. And so we have that, this rule in, in here that God says that you will not be charged with any business and you shall be free at home for one year. Now that might stress some relationships to be home with them all together for you know, uh, 24-7 for a full year. <laughs> But 
ideally it was to really get to know one another. And you've got to remember, these were arranged marriages. They didn't even really hardly know each other a lot of times when they got married. So that first year was to really get to know each other and to be able to learn what, who, who you just got married to. In our day, we can't even imagine such an idea of getting married and not knowing the person. Uh, but the one thing about it is, and it's kind of interesting is, even with our dating culture and, and all these different rituals, made, uh, uh, courting rituals, usually after the marriage, you realize you never knew the person really anyway. You spend your first year of your life getting to know the person that you married. You get to see them off their best behavior. You get to see them when they're, when they're actually going to show you who they are. And you get to learn who they are. And you don't usually see that when you're courting them because everybody's on their good behavior. Verse 6, no man shall take the nether and, or the upper millstone to pledge, for he takes a man's life to pledge. All right, so this is talking about if somebody loaned somebody money, they would take a pledge for the fulfillment of it, or we would call it collateral. And basically he said, you're not going to take his stones that he uses to, to crush the, the weed into flour. And this could be expanded to just about anything. If it was a farmer, you weren't going to take his plow or his ox, because if you took that, they couldn't, they couldn't do their day-to-day -day living. But the point on this statement is that you don't take what they use to make their living. Okay, you're not going to take the mill, miller's stones, because he'll never pay you back if you took, his, took the, the stones that he grinded with. And by, by, by comparison, if you went to the farmer and you took his ox that he uses to plow the field, or you took his plow, he's not going to be able to make money to pay you off. And God's saying you can't do this. Later on, he's going to tell you that you're not to take the cloak of the poor because that's what they need to stay warm at night. You could hold on to it during the daytime, but you had to give it back to them at night so they could be covered up. You weren't to, use, you weren't to take the stuff that they made money with. In other words, you had the pledge, you had the right to take it if they didn't pay you back in whatever time. But even then, you were going to be judged by what you did to these people and what you took from them. If somebody's a computer programmer, you couldn't go in and take their, their computer. You couldn't take you know, whatever it was that they used to make money. If, if it's a mechanic, you weren't going to take his, tool, his tools. And that's what this is saying. It, it says in general, the stones of the mill, but in literal application, it's anything that they're using to make money. You're not to take away their means of making money. But that's, that's also why God didn't like usury and, and loans anyway. And we talked last, last couple weeks ago about usury and not that they weren't to charge interest to one another as Jewish people. But we see this, God is trying to care for the poor. He says, you're not going to be abusive to the poor. And one of the things when we read these laws these laws are not just so narrowly, narrowly uh, described that it's the only example. Back in Leviticus and Numbers, we get a little wider example on what you can and can't take away. But here, he's just going over the, the quick point. Don't take away their livelihood. And we see this, because imagine how big this book would be if they told you everything you couldn't take away. You know, don't take away their cow, don't take away their plow, don't take away their grinding stones, don't take away their, their uh, sheep, don't, you know, whatever it might be you know, don't take away, the book would be huge if we put in every example. So God just puts here, here's the overarching one. Don't take away their livelihood. And very important for us to understand that. Verse 7 goes, And if a man be found stealing any of his brethren, 
of the children of Israel and makes merchandise of them or sells them, then the thief shall die and shall be put to death, and so shall you put evil away from you. This is talking about kidnapping and also kidnapping and selling into slavery, which happens frequently. And God is saying, in his mindset, kidnapping is a capital offense. You kidnap somebody, you're worthy of death. And this is something to, to uh, think about because it's not a capital offense in our, in our mindset. And the damage done by a kidnapping is huge. You destroy them psychologically and sociologically and, and put fear into them. And they're going to suffer that for the rest of their lives if you don't kill them in the process of the kidnap. God says, as far as he's concerned, that's a capital offense. You've caused damage to a child. And Jesus told you that if you harmed a, harmed a child, it was better for you to be, uh, to be cast into the uh, lake with a millstone traveled around your neck, which means you're going to sink straight to the bottom. You're not swimming with a millstone uh, attached to you. But God is protective of the weak, whether they be children, whether they be the poor, whether they be a widow, whether they be orphans. God says, I'm going to protect the innocent. And his laws are very strict. And here he says, don't take away the, you know, they're, they're poor. They borrowed from you because they're poor. And don't take away their livelihood on top of that. He goes, if you kidnap a, a child, you're going to be executed. These are quite severe punishments. But God is saying there's going to be purity amongst his people. And this is a big debate in our day and age. Does punishment prevent crime? And we see a lot of people say, no, it doesn't. The only problem is, especially in America, we really don't punish anybody. When they're sent to prison, they're sent to, for rehabilitation and retraining so that they'll be useful in, in when they get out. And that's been our mentality now for a long time, and it doesn't really work that well. God is not rehabilitating the criminals. He punishes. Here, death penalty for kidnap, death penalty for adultery, death. The New Testament changes the way we as individuals deal with one another. But it does not change the punishment for, from government and the ones that are supposed to protect. On all about justice in, when people do wrong. And in our day and age, we're trying to say, well, we can rehabilitate. And why do we rehabilitate? Because the mentality in our world now is that men are basically good. And if we train them well enough, they will, they will learn to want to do right. And it becomes, because we don't have a biblical view of man, we don't follow the right ways of, of, of uh, correcting the situation. God says man is basically evil, and therefore we need to feel the pain of, of, in discipline so that we get punished enough that we don't want the pain and we stop doing the evil. And that's the whole purpose of God's discipline to us. He inflicts pain on us so that we go... Wow, I did that last time and I got this as the punishment and I really didn't like it. Did I enjoy it well enough to go through that punishment again? And if the punishment is strong enough, then no, the answer is no, I don't want to do it again. And this is what we're supposed to do with our children. We give them a discipline that is painful enough so that when they think about doing it again, they'll think twice. Well, last time I had got my 
butt spanked and I couldn't sit down all night. I don't think I want to do that again. It wasn't the, the, the pleasure of the misdeed was not equivalent to not being able to sit down all night. This is something that is very important. And God says he is all for punishment and making sure that punishment is such that makes people not want to do it again. Rehabilitation would work just fine if we were actually innocent people who wanted to do good. But because we are sinners that want to do bad, we might discipline ourselves to a degree, but we are sinners that want to do bad, and so rehabilitation doesn't work because it is designed to make people be what they're supposedly wanting to be, which is good. And that is not a true starting place according to God. And this is why the current punishment system does not work and it's not it's why when we say well let people just do what they want because they'll they'll naturally want to do good and that's taught to our psychologists and our sociologists and our and everybody in the school system the the ultimate peak is to do what may what pleases you and because you're basically good what pleases you should be good for others but that's never what really happens People always do what's good for them, which means they sin and hurt others if they need to, because we are sinners. And we need to really understand that. This is why, as Christians, we can be successful. Why? Because Christ comes into us, he crucifies the flesh, and he lives out through us, and he kills the flesh. And so this is something that's very important for us. And again, this gets us into the difference between a a worldview without God and God's worldview. And this is something that we've seen more and more crime because we're trying to rehabilitate people to be, to be the good person that they can be. And that doesn't work because they've got to have some change internally to make them somebody who wants to do good, and that's having Christ come out of them. And without that, they're not going to just do good. Pretty sure they're not going to get caught. We'll do wrong. Why do we put locks on doors? It's not to keep the bad guys out because the bad guys can get right in. It's to keep honest people honest. And that's what all the security and everything is, is to keep honest people honest. Because given the opportunity, they will take it. Find a $100 bill on the ground, and what is everybody going to do? They're not going to try to find the owner in most cases. They're going to put it in their pocket and go spend it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny because you've seen all kinds of different shows where they see what people will do. I mean, what will they really do? when they think nobody's watching. Candid camera and everything did these kind of skits frequently. Uh, let's see what they're going to do with this. There's another one who pocketed it. Here's another one that pocketed it. All of the stuff that comes down to it is just that. What are we going to do? How are we going to live? Without Christ, we will not live correctly because our flesh will roar up. Now, if we've been disciplined in our lifetime, we may be more disciplined. We may be more likely to be obedient to God without him. But we still, in our heart, the only reason we're being good is because we're afraid of the punishment, which is the purpose of punishment. All right? Uh, And here he's saying, you know, if they're a kidnapper, they shall die. Verse 8, take heed in the plague of leprosy, that you observe diligently and do according to all that the priest and the Levites shall teach you. As I commanded them, so shall you observe to do. Remember what the Lord your God did unto Miriam by the way. After that, you were, in, were come out from Egypt. 
leprosy. We've talked many times about leprosy. Leprosy is a picture of sin in our life, uh, as well as being a physical disease. And leprosy is extremely contagious, and it destroys the feeling in the body. And it would be, it would be exposed by welts on the body and lesions. And what it did is it destroyed your feeling. So that somebody could cut their fingers clean off or their leg off or make a huge cut in their leg, not feel it. They could grab a hot pan and not feel it. So the reason they lost most of their limbs were not because of the leprosy per se, but they would injure themselves, not know that they've injured themselves and not treat it. Like most of us, if we cut ourselves, we would go, we'd stop cutting number one, and then we would apply antibiotics and, and medicine and keep it from getting infected. The person with leprosy would not know that they had been cut, lose their limbs because, they would, because of infections. This was a time when rats and mice were around, they'd be crawling on you, they would nibble on, your, on them and they, and they would never know it, they wouldn't wake up, they wouldn't twitch when something touched them, so the animals would eat, eat of them because they're not, they're not instinctively pulling back. And it was highly contagious. So God says, when it is in existence, they are to be put out of the camp. I always thought if you touch someone, if you have leprosy, if you just touch another person, it can, they can contract it. It was contagious like that. Does that mean lifestyle? Well, it's contagious. It's highly contagious, but just touching them, yeah. you know, just barely touching them would not necessarily do it. Just like every other con con contagent, it has to have, it would have to hit a lesion in the skin or a cut or or something of that nature, or it, it is a bacterial infection. Anything that would cause a normal bacteria to be transmitted could happen to you. And you've got to remember, in, in many ways, baths were not common in this day and age. Okay, You took your yearly bath whether you needed it or not in, the, in those days. And so if you got infected, if you got infected, you got that on it, it would stand, live on your skin until you did get cut. So in many ways, if you had touched somebody, you would be exposed to it in a way that you could catch it. The Jews were a little better because God trained them to wash their hands and to, to clean up. Here is, God says, leprosy is to be followed in pursuit. You're to show themselves to the priest, the priest are to look them over. If they see a spot on it, they, they send the person outside the camp for a week, then they are brought back, they examine them. If the spot went away, then they just figure it was a boil and you can be, come back in. If it's, if, it stayed, if it's the same exact same size, then they're sent back out again for a week. If it's gotten bigger, they say you've got leprosy and you're, and you're kicked out of the camp basically for the rest of your life. This outbreak thing sounds like a plague or something. God had rules for preventing plagues and, and, and diseases. If somebody got sick, they were to be put out of the camp. And one of the things that has happened over time is cities have huge problems with things like cholera, with uh, all these other diseases. You know, they, the sickness comes in and spreads across the entire city and wipes out, used to wipe out large cities because of the plagues that would hit, hit them. God had already put in place, if somebody's that sick, they, they get sick, you put them out of the camp so that their sickness did not get into the other people. Especially when you think about it, they're having three and a half million people in this camp that they're dealing with. 
There aren't any small villages. There aren't any small towns. It is one very large town. And you're around them all the time. If you're not, in the, if you're not at home with them, you're marching with them. Because the only time you moved was when you were moving out. So God says, your diseased people are not going to be part of the camp. You're going to send them out. You're going to, we would call it quarantine or isolation in our day. And we still do that. If somebody's sick enough or we don't know what they're sick with, the hospital will quarantine them. They will put them in isolation and say, okay, we're going to wait and find out what's going on. And that is exactly what God told them to do when somebody showed signs of leprosy. They were to be quarantined, see how, see how they went. And, he go, and then he pictures the picture of Miriam. And this goes back to Miriam and Aaron came and they challenged Moses saying, who do you think you are? We're, we're, prophets, you know, we're, we're prophets and priests before God. And they challenged his authority. And God struck Miriam with leprosy. And Moses' reaction, if you remember, he went straight to his face and started praying for Miriam. said, God, we're not moving until she's healed. Quite bold. <laughs> Quite bold in his case. They had just attacked him, and he's saying, God, you know, forgive her, take, take this away. And she was a leper for three days before she was returned, healed and returned. Again, we get a picture of the resurrection, dying and then resurrecting. But leprosy was a huge problem up until very recently we now know how to how to cure it and it takes large mega doses of antibiotics over a period of six months to a year to heal uh, leprosy and uh, but it, in this day it was a death sentence you you became a leper you were isolated from everybody else they had to yell unclean as you came anywhere near them they'd have to yell unclean and go go the other direction they were not able to be around people. They were not able to touch anything. Verse 10, when you do lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to fetch the pledge. You shall stand abroad, and the man to whom you did lend shall bring out the pledge unto you. And if the man be poor, you shall not sleep with his pledge. In any case, you shall deliver him the pledge again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own raiment and bless you, and it shall not and it shall be righteousness unto you before the Lord your God. So here we have the idea of you loan somebody some money or things. You were not to go into his house and take their pledge out. Because God's saying the house still belongs to them. And that you don't have the right. And we still have pretty much that mentality in our day and age. You cannot just go in and, and take what you want from the person. You have to get a court order and it takes special special rules and God saying okay he owes you something you are not going into his house to take it you have to stand out there and they have to bring it out to you jump the track somewhere didn't we learn not too long ago that any kind of pledge or usury which is charging interest the pledge was their collateral I, I loan you money I expect to get my money back I can't charge you interest but I do expect to get my money back so I take something of value from you or be or you are putting something up uh, if you we do a house loan technically the house is supposed to be the collateral so that if you default on your loan the bank takes your house in this case he's saying many times it was their clothes their their sleeping their sleeping bag or their coat or or something you didn't need it during the daytime but you needed it at night 
So you could hold on to it during the daytime, but as he said, when it became nighttime and they needed their uh, coat to keep warm, you had to give them back their coat overnight. Then you'd have to go back to their house in the morning and get your coat, get the coat that's pledged. This is quite an ordeal, which I think God's making the ordeal primarily because he doesn't want them loaning money to each other in the first place. Because he's not, he says, number one, you can't loan with usury. So he's, he's saying, and I really, I'm not really wanting you to loan one another money because they're your brother. They're your sister. You're, they're your family. Give to them to help them. Quit trying to take advantage of them just because they're poor. And so this is what God is saying. You know, they're, they're poor. You, sh- you, know, you can't take, and take their, their pledge overnight because you had the money to give them. Now you've now you got their coat or whatever it is they pledged in your house and they're not able to stay warm or use it. And I, and I really truly believe that this is God saying, I really don't want you loaning at all, so we're going to make things difficult for you when you do loan. You can't charge interest, and if you take something, you've got to give it back to them every night. Not a very practical way of, of doing this. He made it uncomfortable. That's what I'm thinking is he's making it uncomfortable that if you're going to help your... If you're going to help your family, help them. Don't, don't try to be a nuisance to, to them. And this is something we see. God cares for the poor. And he doesn't want the poor taken advantage of by the rich. And God is really strict with this. If we are abusing the poor, the widow, the orphans, God says he protects them. Over and over again in, the, in the, these first five books, he says, I protect the widow, the orphan, the, the poor. And you don't want God against you. (laughs) Much of God's rules did not get practiced because they started running things the way man wanted to run them instead of the way God wanted to run. And God's saying, I'm going to protect. I'm going to honor. And the one thing about this is when you trust, for the the rich person helping the poor, God's going to bless them for helping them. For the poor person, if they're being abused by by the rich person, God's going to take care of the rich person and discipline them. So this is something that happens, maybe not in our time and as fast as we would like it to happen, but God is going to respond. He is going to take care of the negative things that are going on and uh, be able to take care of it. Verse 14, you shall not oppress a hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of your brethren or your strangers, they that are in the land within your gates, at the, his day you shall give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor and sets his heart upon it. Lest he cry out against you, against you unto the Lord, and it shall be a sin unto you. In other words, this was a day when you, got, you did your work and you got paid the same day. And God says, you will not withhold their wages. They get to the end of the day, you will pay them their wages. And God is very strict on this. He goes, they need that money. They're poor. They're, they're working so that they can basically buy their food and, and, and cut, you know, whatever they need to, for oil for lamps or candles or food for their family. And he goes, they expect to be paid and you, are, you, you took their labor and you are expected to pay them. And he says, why? Because he might just cry out against God, against you to God. And again, the last thing you want is God to have his face against you and saying, oh, you're not paying your wages? God might just take away everything that you have. 
because of the severity of it. His punishment always is designed to make sure that you don't do it again. Yeah, well, that's me more than that. It would be much more than that. God probably would take away a lot of their wealth and a lot of their produce because he's going to make it an equivalent or more pain to them so they don't do it again. And this is what God always does. The, the discipline is always enough to make us think very hard about committing the same act again. And that's what discipline should do. And we see this even in our day. It wasn't so long ago when the fine for littering was like 15 bucks, 20 bucks. And it wasn't because you didn't make any money. It's just they figured if we find you, you would be okay. And then most people said, well, you know, 20 bucks, 50 bucks, no big deal. Now the fines, if you look on there, 500, 5,000, you know, they are fines that make people think twice about littering because you look at that sign and go, well, I don't know if throwing this out the window is worth, <laughs> worth losing uh, a fifth of my year's income. That is the, what proper discipline is all about. It's supposed to be severe enough that you think about what you're getting ready to do. And God will always make sure that our discipline makes us think about the cost of what we're getting ready to do. Now, the problem is a lot of times the world doesn't associate the bad times with God. They go, boy, I was just unlucky or I had a bad, you know, a really bad streak in business. And it's probably because they've been cheating their, their employees and their customers. And God says, okay, you're cheating them. I'm going to take from you. So we, we look at all these things. Uh, verse 16, the, father, the fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for their fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the judgment of strangers, nor the fatherless, nor take the widow's raiment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you thence. Therefore I command you to do this thing. So basically he's saying that you're only going to be punished for what you did. All right? Uh, if a father is a bad father or bad man, his children weren't going to be punished for what the father did. If the father went out and, and lost all of his money gambling and bad investments, he, God says you can put the man into debtor's prison, you can put him in prison until he pays, but you're not putting his whole family in because they're not responsible for his debts. And this is something that's very important for us. The same thing for, for if the children went out and did wrong things. The parents weren't going to pay for what the children did. Now, in practice, that very rarely happened and very rarely happens even in our day. Parents often are held accountable for what their kids do. And it's starting to get really bad in our, in our day. We're not allowed to discipline our kids, but we're responsible for what the kids do. And it's kind of a, they want it both ways, and that doesn't work very well. And God is saying, you will not do that. You won't pervert judgment of the stranger, of the widow, of the father, of the orphaned. Why? We hear it all the time in our day. If you have enough money, you can buy yourself freedom. You can get, you can get out on some technicality with a good lawyer. Again, nothing new under the sun. Same thing, Ben. If you had a good, good enough uh, lawyer or enough money, you bought your way out of punishment. And God says, that's not going to happen. One law for all people, poor and rich. And God says, you're going to pay. If you misbehave, you will pay. You're not going to pay for others. But he says, it's one rule. And it goes, you, 
you're not going to pervert judgment. And in reason being, he says, remember that you were slaves. His whole reason goes back to you were, know what it is to be abused, remember what it is to be abused, and don't treat others in that manner. And this is something that usually works for all of us. If you've had a really bad experience at the hands of somebody, you usually don't want to inflict it unless you've got some really evil streak in you. And then it's like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make these people pay. I got hurt. These people are going to get hurt. Usually we have compassion when we've, been, when we've had things that we don't try to do, the, do it. And that's what God uses as his reason. You were slaves. Quit trying to abuse others. Don't abuse others because you know what it feels like. You know what it feels like to be abused. Verse 19, when you cut down your harvest in your field and you have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, for the widow, and the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat out your olive trees, you shall not go over the brows again, and it shall be for the stranger and the fatherless and for the widow. When you grind, gather your grapes in your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widows. And you shall remember that you were a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. God's way of providing for the poor. God did not say just, just uh, rich man, give, give the poor you know, money and, and food. That is the world's way of doing it. That's the way our world does it nowadays. Government just gives people stuff. And what does giving somebody something that they don't deserve do? It makes them lazier. And we see that often. Government gives money and they start getting this idea, well, I'm owed. I'm owed a living. I, I, the government owes me my stuff. God says, no. They're going to get out and they're going to do some work. When you do your field, if you happen to forget one of the piles of, of wheat that you gathered up, you don't go back over and get it. It's, it's going to go to the, to the widows, to the, to the strangers, to the, those who are in need. When you are taking the olives off the tree, when you're done with that tree, you're, you're to let anything that's left go to the poor. When you gather your grapes, if you're not to go back over again and over again and over again and get every last grape. We also know from Leviticus that they were to literally leave the corners of their field totally unharvested and the poor and the widows and everybody could go there and not just take the, the leftovers that they had to dig up, but they had a, a spot on the field where they could just go and get food. And remember last week we talked about if you're walking through the field, you could just grab an apple or a grape or a cluster of grapes, but you couldn't take them home with you. You had to eat it right there because God cares about the poor. He wants them taken care of. And we see God's desire not just to give them a handout and make them lazy, you know, and not to kill them, no, <laughs> but to get them to come out and do labor and say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do some work. He didn't have to plant the field, didn't have to plow the field, didn't have to plant it, didn't have to weed it, didn't have to water it, but they did have to earn by going out and doing something the food that they put on their table. And that was God's provision for them. And God's provision for us as Christians is the same thing. We need to go out and get into the word. We need to get out and go to church and talk to one another and glean from one another because we need one another to learn. The Holy Spirit is our teacher, but we also need one another because there's only so far that we can go. 
And I share with you all, I listen to a lot of messages. Why? Because I want to see things from a different point of view. I want to get some fresh ideas that are beyond just anything that I can come up with. And it's wonderful to be fed. I like to be fed. I also like to feed myself, but I like to be fed once in a while by, by one of these other pastors. Because sometimes they come up with some really interesting things that they say. And it's wonderful to listen. But God is saying we are to take care of one another. That doesn't mean you take care of the lazy bum who doesn't want to get up out of his, out of his easy chair and do any work. But if somebody is truly trying to get, get by, we help them. We do what we can. It's the purpose of the food banks. It's the purpose of the clothes closets the church has put together. Is you need the help, you're trying, we're going to help you. And again, part of the part process in the church when they do these things is to look at somebody and go, am I really helping you or am I just trying to, or am I enabling you to be lazy? And we're not out there to enable people to be lazy because that's not what God wants. Proverbs tells us there's a lazy man who's so lazy he can't, he puts his hand in the bowl and won't even bring it to his mouth. That's pretty lazy. They won't even bring their, you know, they put their hand in the bowl and go, oh, no, it's too much work. Too much work to feed myself. Those are not the people God's protecting with these rules for taking care of the poor. He's saying we are to reach out and touch and be able to minister to people. And this is what God is trying to tell us. We are to love one another enough that we care for one another and help one another. And this is something that's, that's vitally important. We want to give to God. And giving is beyond the tithe. The tithe, I truly believe the tithe belongs to God. Anything above the tithe is, can go to wherever you want it, whoever you want it, and help them. Because God is saying, my people need to be, be protected. And we've talked about this back a while ago. The tithe, I went to the Levites. The Levites tithe to the priest, and the priest tithe to the to the high priest, and the high priest then, I would assume, burned, burned his tithe to God. We, the tithe belongs to the, where you're getting fed. The, the offerings can go wherever you want it to go, whether it's the church or other people or other missionaries. But we need to be able to help one another. In the early church, because when they got saved, especially in Jerusalem, they lost everything usually. Their family disowned them. The people didn't want to go to their businesses because they became Christians. And they church joined together and helped one another to, just to survive. They shared with one another with what, whatever they had because it was needed. And God says, love one another. Care for the poor. Care for the widow. Care for the orphans. And in our day and age, orphans and widows are somewhat better treated than they used to be. And it used to be that if you were an orphan or a widow, you had nothing. You might not even get to keep your house by the time taxes and stuff rolled around and you would usually lose everything. And God's saying, no, we're going to protect you. We're going to keep them. The story of Ruth is all about her going out and harvesting in the field and catching the eye of Boaz, her kinsman redeemer. And he bought her back and said, I'm going to, I'm going to bring you back. We're going to get a child for Naomi. And we see that whole kinsman redeemer and being, the poor being taken care of. And this is what God expects from us, to care for one another. When, you, when we see a person in need and we withhold when we can help, God says, that's sin. That's not the way to go. Now, we can't help everybody. We can't help all people. And there's certain people that don't need help, that think they need help. There's certain people that are just lazy, and if they just did a little bit of work, they could help themselves. And those aren't the people we're needing to help. But God says, 
the truly poor, the truly poor, the ones who are trying to do the best they can, they need help. The, the widow, the orphans, the, the ones who are not able to make ends meet. Strangers, the, the term we use here is strangers. They were to be taken care of because they were without family, they were without help. And again, they were the ones that were able to go into the fields and glean the fields, and they were to be expected to be taken care of. And there is a place where you can deal with that. There is a place for that. And we are, to, we are supposed to help those who need help. The, the problem we're having in our day and age is almost everybody has been considered you know, disabled in some way. And All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. We thank you for this time. We ask you to help us to learn to love one another and to be willing to help when, when we can and, and when there's real need. And Lord, we ask you that if anybody needs to know you as your Lord and Savior, that they will recognize they're a sinner and ask you to come into their heart and, and seek after you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.